Hello and welcome to another episode of Is This Just Fantasy? I'm your host, Geordie Bailey. And I'm the man who only came up with one Berserk-themed intro, Duncan Nickel. We, we, we come up with one together. I mean, it is the Halloween episode. We could do, like, the sort of Treehouse of Horror stuff, you know, Gouldy Bailey and Dead Man Nickel. I just think what's another, like, great character from this arc. There are so many, and, like, and I'm the small child psych, no... I'm the stone-faced arbiter of... No. I'm a weird angel man with a vagina in his chest? Definitely no. Um, I'm a band of misfit torturers. Again? (laughs) I'm a collection of very helpful prostitutes? That'll do. Yeah, (laughs) okay. I'm Jordy Bailey, and this is Duncan Nickel, a collection of very helpful prostitutes. And we're talking about Berserk. Berserk, again! Twice in a row! It's Duncan. It's time. It's time, Duncan. It's time for the Tower of Conviction. Well, the Conviction arc is named after. Yes. Yeah. Well, get into we'll get into that later. But technically speaking, technically speaking, I've kind of made this distinction up, Duncan, because there's no such thing as the Tower of Conviction arc. There's the Conviction arc, which is made of three chapters, and we're going to be talking about two of them. But I personally really think of this as a separate thing. Even though Farness and Serpico and Azan first appear in the Lost Children arc, because they don't come into the fore until the next arc, the Iron Chain whatever arc, a chapter, I really just think of that whole section as one bit of Berserk, with a distinct beginning middle and end and i'm inclined to agree with you as someone reading this through for the first time i'm coming to berserk very fresh geordie has already read the entirety of berserk i didn't feel like this was two distinct points obviously lost children which we covered in our last episode it's distinct distinct golden age distinct black swordsman distinct the fact that this is sort of two bits that because technically they do have a section and then they go to the tower yeah so I kind of get that there's a bit of a geographical split. But in terms of the actual narrative, the plot, what we're coming over, it's Guts dealing with the Holy See. Mm. And thank you. I couldn't remember it last time we recorded what it was called. And it's getting back on track from just killing monsters to looking for Cusker and, and engaging with her character. Yes. And I feel like that's, that kind of is covered by both. Yeah, for very sure. Very naturally in these two sections. So, yeah, splat them together. I've nothing about that. For those coming to this fresh, we have talked about Berserk in three episodes already. Two last year, one already this year. If this is your first time, don't start here. Go back. There's too much to cover in Berserk. Right. And personally, Duncan, I think this is my favourite part of Berserk. There's a lot of great stuff on either side of it, but I just think there's something about this arc which is just nails it. This is the bullseye. I don't know how to react to that, Geordie, because I obviously don't know what comes later, Mm. but I do know what comes before, and I still have a heartthrob for the Golden Age arc. I mean, that's fair. I'm not sure I could say that Conviction really... In fact, I'm not even sure that I like this bit of Conviction as much as I sort of like the Lost Children. But the thing is, Geordie, it's all so good. Yeah, It's, it's true. 
kind of hard to differentiate. I think there's a very specific reason why I think this is like the sweet spot in Berserk, and that is the fact that I have more context and I know what comes after. Because for me, the Conviction arc represents the exact middle point of Berserk. I don't know if that's the case mathematically, I haven't counted the chapters, but I think this is the point where the development of Guts as a character, it changes course. You see, as you said before, we see in this arc the way in which Guts try, starts to transition out of his crazy, roaring rampage revenge Black Swordsman arc into the protector of Casca persona. And that is a very important part of Berserk as a whole, and that's what it begins here. And maybe that's part of why I'm so attached to it, and Guts's rehabilitation, you might say. But he doesn't start the story on the path to rehabilitation. We actually get the first appearance of quite an important... I don't know if I want to say character. I'm going to say element of the story. Duncan, can you tell me about the Beast of Darkness? Hey. Okay, so this didn't even register for you. Duncan, can you tell me a little about this spooky black dog? Uh, yes, I can tell you it's spooky. Yes. Um, I can tell you it definitely seems to, I, I would say it's almost like, a, I, to be quite honest, was having a little debate whether or not it was actually meant to be more of a personification than an actual, like another demon. It didn't strike me like a full on another demon. I, I, I always thought it's like, is this just like an artistic way of showing like, a darkness hanging over guts. Yeah, is it supernatural or is it schizophrenia? I, I guess that's another way to come put it. But yeah, is is it literal in the world or mm. is it just sort of this more abstract manifestation that's visually being depicted? Um, and I I'm not sure. Having just read this arc, what it's meant to be, I felt like if it was meant to be a full fledged demon. Well, there's a lot of demons in this world, and a lot of them they make very obvious very quickly that they'll bite your head off. This one didn't. Yeah, Duncan, that's really interesting. It's a really interesting perspective you bring. It's actually, it actually amused me. It wasn't until I was halfway through saying the words Beast of Darkness that I realised that I don't even know if they call it that at this point. They do not. Mm. Is what I'm going to go with. Spooky Dog. That Spooky, spooky dog, dog has influenced a lot of art. It's so cool looking. It has a, a weird sort of texture to it. Mm. I don't quite know how to, like, kind of swirly. It's almost... Um... And its eye is like a lightning bolt. Yeah, it's not... You keep saying dog. Isn't it meant to be more wolf-like? Canonically, it is a dog. It is wolf It is lupine, I might say, but for stuff that's way later down the line, I can confirm that it is a dog. Talking of stuff way down the line, and just addressing a point you made earlier, I can confirm that the end of conviction does mathematically pretty much make the halfway point Interesting. as of recording. Not temporally, that's for sure. Things started to slow down. <laughs> Are you saying in terms of output, so publication-wise? Yes. yes. At a certain point, we would get two chapters a year if we were lucky. Do you know, when I think that my tiny little volumes are made out of, like, eight chapters... And for the, re- for the record, what would be typical for an average manga would be about either once a month or once a, once a week. I mean, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a Western comic, isn't it? Western comics normally come out on monthly basis. Yeah, yeah so, that's true. And that's roughly what I, I would say a chapter aligns to. When I look at my volumes and think that took me, I don't know, a lunch break to read. And I'm probably looking at like a year's output. And the idea that later down the line, that represents four years output is kind of scary. 
There is a part in Berserk where um, Guts very infamously gets on a boat, and he does not get off in that boat for some time. In fact, the entirety of Naruto Shippuden happened in the time between him getting on the boat and off the boat. <laughs> oh, hell. That, that blows my mind a little Being bit. Being a Berserk fan is, like, is a struggle. Well, it's also a delight, isn't it? It is a delight, it is. I remember once, a long time ago, a YouTuber was talking about um, the fact that a Berserk chapter had released and um, and about how much of a big deal it was to the fans. And she said it was like a bit like being a military wife in that you like, I know you're only here for a bit and then you're going to leave again, but I love you. I can't remember who it was, I mean... though. Who said it? It'll come back to me later. Uh, that would be Dodger, as in press hearts to continue. Sure, sure thing, Geordie. That's a comparison you want to make. But no, I get the point you're making. It's well, it's gonna be hard when something's infrequent, especially if you're, you're a big fan. You're following on. There's, uh, as you know, there are many famous fantasy series that we are long awaiting the next installments in. Duncan, will you just let it go? <laughs> I was a child when I read Dance of Dragons, Geordie. Oh my god. I'm a man now. <laughs> but no, this a very point though, because you get to this point. Uh, but what's interesting, and what I really have to give credit to the Berserk fandom in, for some of those other fantasy series, I do genuinely think there's a point where the vast majority of people just checked out. But with Berserk, mm. I really get the impression that the community was like, no, 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 we have faith. We are progressing. And we will yeah, finish this. No, this. for sure. I'm a big fan of another manga called Hajime no Ippo, which is made by George Morikawa, who was actually um, Kentamiura's senpai. Like, he was his, like, he used to be, like, an assistant for him. So they were close pals. And he's been working on his manga for 1,400 chapters. Started, like, a little bit before Berserk. Still going to this day. And um, there are fans of that who are like, I haven't read in a couple of years because I want to wait to catch up with a series after like a particular part's done and they want to read it in one go and that is i don't think that's the case of berserk fans people who like berserk are just here present savoring each bite is there a great like um how to put this so like in the star wars community one of the biggest things is they give you a little bit and then everyone speculates that arse is off like, what could this mean? Who could that character be? What's going to happen? It's the same vibe in Berserk. It's there, like, plenty oh, yeah. of fully famed f- fantasies. It's like, okay, this is beat by beat what we think this is going to go like. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, 100%. 100%. There are basically two camps around, like, what the ending is going to be like. And to put it very, very br- briefly, there is one camp who believes that the ending is going to be Guts ripping Griffith's head off his shoulders and everything's great, and the other half is like, it's going to be a miserable ending. I mean, I can see both occurring. I can see Guts killing Griffiths, and it's still being a miserable ending. There was a major, major, major um, like fan theory that was proved to be correct the week the mangaka died. Oh, my life. Yeah. Okay, well, I haven't engaged with any fan theories. Like I said, I am, I've read up to the end of this arc, and that is it. I am blind. I know there's a boat. <laughs> you know there's a boat. That, that's pretty much it. You know, at it. some point, Guts and Puck stop talking to each other because they've grown apart in their lives. But all you know now is that you've just been introduced to Farney and Serpico. Let's talk about the Holy Sea, Duncan. 
So the Holy See, for me, Geordie, there's this order of like holy knights, crusaders, paladins, whatever you want to kind of vibe them with. What kind of interesting to me is the fact that, okay, I don't want to sound negative. There was a bit of like, oh, you're quite a big deal. Why are you mentioned earlier? <laughs> like, where were you in the war? No, they, well, for one thing, Duncan, they don't serve any nation. They serve the Pope. Where you mentioned earlier? Flipping yeah, through my notes. That's another thing. <laughs> they are, the Pope is just, he's a part of the world. He's out there somewhere. But it's weird you didn't mention it, the fact there's a pontiff. Like, there was clearly an organised religion. And I sort of just yeah. super question it. So the idea that it's structured similar to our world makes sense. I just, once again, there's been so many talks of, like, gods and demons. It's sort of this little thing when, like, um, you think, like, the band of the hawk and they see all the demons. You just think someone would be like, oh, no, my faith in the pontiff will keep me safe. I don't know. I just, I, it may it brought in a few more questions about, like, the, the standard religion in this world. Seeing that we spend so much time talking about demons and angels, I'm like... Wait, so what's the faith? What's the codified book again? How does it work? So, yeah, I mean, there's not much to say. They have a vaguely Christian faith. They worship specifically God, but they don't have a Jesus. And, um, yeah, they have a pope. And the pope has sent these knights to capture guts because he's the he might be the herald of the apocalypse. I and, mean, um, Geordie, just to cut across you there, a bit of my own fan theory. They don't have a Jesus yet. Yeah, they don't have a Jesus yet. Come on, Griffiths. Griffith, yeah. What a fucking guy. So, um, what were we talking about before we were talking about Messiahs? Oh, yeah, they go to capture Guts. Now, it's literally immediately after uh, the Lost Children arc. It might even be the next day or not even, like, actual hours later. Um, and they, they surround Guts and <laughs> Guts can literally can barely even swing his sword he still kills like five of them and like takes on their strongest fighter and he only gets taken down by like pure chance because of course you don't want guts your cool badass hero to get captured by the mooks because they are canonically useless it is a canonical status in the story that um that they suck they're not good fighters no i did like that was addressed that these are like the members of the Holy See are like all the noble sons who are kept like away from the actual fighting. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's even why they got sent. They literally sign them up so they don't die in the Hundred Years' War. Yeah, I can see that kind of trail following, and I do enjoy the fact that it's made very clear that our hero has already gone through so much. That's why he gets captured. No, mm, no one yeah. here is played up to be like a genuine counter to guts no one is a no mortal man Azan is the only one who comes close and he can't even and he can't even touch guts let's hit on i guess three characters we can bring Azan in he's not much of a character but i do like him a lot um let's talk about him in order of importance we'll start with Azan, serpico and then funness okay duncan tell me about Azan. Azan is what i would say the he might genuinely be the nice, like the best moral character I've been introduced in the world of Berserk. Weirdly, he does maybe nothing really wrong. He sticks to his duty, even though sometimes that does get him to do kind of worse things. But he has a sense of honour. He likes to, but he genuinely tries to protect the small folk, uphold the law. He's a decent fighter. He doesn't seem to have any horrific um, 
traumas or habits, which I cannot say for some of the other characters we're going to talk about soon. Seems like mm-hmm. a kind of a decent bloke, bit stiff upper lipped, but do you know what? I don't mind that. Nice guy. Nice moustache. Yeah, has a moustache, fights with a quarter staff. Always nice to see. Bit of variety out there. Big fucking cool quarter staff that's full of metal studs. It looks great. Yeah, I like him, but he's not fascinatingly deep. It's no, just kind of enjoyable to have around. Is, to be fair, he almost strikes me as a bit of a like, oh, it's nice to see someone just slightly more mundane. A lot of <laughs> over-the-top characters here. And to say that he's mundane is quite a bit, because his, his fights are pretty he's intense. But... Great. Good, J- Duncan, you've you ne- you done it, you've done it, you did great. You're a wonderful podcaster. Now tell me about Serpico. I, I'm not sure what to say. Geordie, don't judge me. But I love this person. I know so little about <laughs> I Serpico. I love him too, dude. <laughs> I love Serpico. He's so wonderful. He's so my favourite. I'm so happy he survived. I hope he stays around for a long, long... I want him to be a, another like recurring slash main character. Serpico is cool. great. He has such a cool... He's the only one who keeps his cool to the same level of like... Well, anyone really... I know I don't say he channels an element of Griffith because obviously he's, he, the, the Griffith that Griffith sometimes tried to, to like put out there, Serpico kind of has. He's cool. In that he's cool and calm and collected and even a little bit debonair, right? Yes, but he's still clearly, although he can't like go toe-to-toe with guts, fair, even Griffith at the point couldn't go toe-to-toe with guts, he's still like dangerous and like on point and I love the fact there's a great scene where he smart fights scheming. guts. And he, he thinks about things. He's like, I'm going to fight this dangerous swordsman. So I'm going to do it on a cliff. Mm. It's going to be narrow. I'm going to make sure I approach him in this direction so his sword hand is up against the wall so he can't swing. I'm going to... It's, it's so good. It's such an amazing so... introduction. Like, it's not the introduction to the character because he's been in a ton of chapters at that point. But up until then, he's had this, like, facade going on for the most part. And this is one of the principal moments where he reveals, actually, I'm a genuine threat and you have not taken me seriously up to this point, and that was by design. The only thing he leaves me is just wondering what's his story. Sometimes, for each of these characters that introduce, well, no, for Puck and Serpico, sometimes I just like, can I get a Golden Age style flashback on you? How the hell did you, as your formed character, possibly arrive in this place? So interesting. I love the fact that he's a little bit more... Like We talked about comic relief and how Puck, to me, kind of stood out a little bit. This is a comic relief mm-hmm. that I'm like, okay, this blends a bit more with the world for me. Not that I don't like Puck. But Serpico's comedy <coughs> just fits a bit nicer. Doesn't seem as out of place. I also love the great man. I talked about that sword fight. There's a sword fight much earlier on. It's not really a sword fight. Where Serpico's like no, chatting it's, it's... to Guts. And then yeah. just... Out of nowhere, he tries to just take a swing. Cause he's like, if I can just distract him. And then Guts basically goes, nope. And he's like, oh, well, worth a try. See you later. It's so, exactly, it's so good. There's so many amazing things about that fight, like about how Farnes orders Serpico to kill Guts, seemingly because he's just arrived. He doesn't know why. And he's like, he blows off. He's like, I'm not going to do that. He's going to kill me. Uh, he gets slapped in the face for it. He, and as you see, he has his little chit-chat with Guts. And it's and it's literally in between panels. We don't get even see the moment where he draws his sword. It's just... There's a fight happening. And it's not even a fight. It's two people swinging at each other. And it's so close to killing Serpico that he that cuts, cuts off the bottom of his boot. And then the panel afterwards is him looking at 
the bottom of his foot being like, whoa, that was close. He is the D&D character. I know I don't have enough natural charisma to ever play. (laughs) And the thing about it is that he's not even like dashing on rakish or anything. You know, like, he's quite a subdued character. He's very emotionally reserved. And he's absolutely... He's a bit of a casker, actually, because he's unswervingly loyal to one other person. Yes, and that other person is Farin. Fairness? Farness. Farness. Geordie Farness. Farness. This is going to be interesting, Duncan. So please tell me about Farness, because I'm going to be listening, and a lot of Berserk fans are going to be listening very attentively to this. Farness, as she is portrayed in the Conviction arc, is a person who has a lot of trauma. And she does not know how to process this, evidently. And she kind of flips between taking it out on herself and taking it out on the world at large. She is clinging to... To put it more explicitly, because Duncan is a very delicate flower, she is an actual sadomasochist in, like, the sexual Freudian way. Yes, she is. And there are definite points in this where, you know, she is clinging to this sort of religious belief as hoping that it's going to possibly say, because she clearly feels a lot of shame for that aspect of her character... And yes, shame. This is an extremely Catholic character. <laughs> it's very hard because there are points where I definitely felt a lot of pity for this character and I sort of wanted to come through. Mm-hmm. And she's certainly not portrayed as an out and out villain as other characters clearly are. She's not on that demonic list. Mm-hmm. But there are definitely this, there is one scene where she definitely crosses a line where I just went. I don't know how I can feel about you anymore as a character. I don't. Which scene is that? There is a scene where it depicts um, a they are hunting heretics and they capture them and they are to be burnt mm-hmm. at the stake. And we see Fairness's, uh, Fairness's uh, her, oh, yeah. her reaction to this. And it was non-traditional. And I can't... Sexual arousal. Yes. She's clearly aroused watching these people burn to death. And I'm like, sorry, how am I meant to feel about this character? How can I continue to... Because I I was pity and intrigue. What I will say is she's fascinating as a character. She's a great character to Mm. have. And she is really good to enrich this world. Because it's a world filled of people who are traumatised. And are struggling in themselves. And not black and white villains. But gosh, I didn't know if I liked her or not. I, and I think the reason is, you know, you can take it or leave it. Lots of people have conflicting feelings about Farness. And the, I don't know, the, I mean, the prognosis on Farness as a character is not, it's not a solid one within the Berserk fandom. Um, personally, I love Farness. I think she's a great character. As you say, she's complex. She's nuanced, especially at this part of the story. And, like, the specific thing about her being a sadomasochist is the fact that, like, well... Guts is also a sadomasochist, right? Like, Guts derives pleasure from hurting other people. And he derives not pleasure, but, like... And not gratification, but... He seeks out harm being done to him as a sort of, like, purge out of shame and self-hatred. 
And she does the same thing. She, like, whips herself out of the feelings of guilt for the complicated feelings she feels. And the reason why, you know, she does these things, that she's a good servitor of a church hunting down and killing heretics, is that that's the only positive affirmation she ever got as a kid, being brought up in a fundamentalist religious society. If she indulged in the most brutal parts of that religious society, in the harming of... Uh, the harming of heretics, she was rewarded for it. And that's the inception of her association of pleasure and pain. Yeah, she's a very complex character. I don't... And I had such a shocker because that sort of presented to you and you're like, I see. I see how this comes together. I see how you react. And to be honest, I actually find that... We mentioned her, Serpico, the character, has an undying loyalty to her. And to be honest, that was actually kind of a bit of a saving grace in me liking her as a character. Because I went, well, Serpico mm. must see something here. Like, this person to <laughs> even be saved or this person to work through. So I'm like, well, if he sees something and I'm liking him, I'll get the benefit of that. Certainly, of many of the characters here, she's someone that I want to see a lot, lot more of. I want to know how she develops going forward. I don't, unlike, say, a character that mm. we saw, like, Jill in the Lost Children's arc, where I'm like, your story is kind of ended. I don't need to see you again. Mm. I need to see more of Arnes and Serpico as a little partnership. I need to know how they develop and how they work through their situation, particularly how this arc ends. And I don't want to kind of jump to it straight away, but obviously it ends with her leaving the Holy Order to seek new purpose. And I think we get a very strong hint of what her next obsession is going to be. Duncan, I just really love talking about Berserk. Like, this is such a genuine moment. Listening to you experience Farness for the first time, I have a big old grin on my face. Because this is so fun for me. I've been, I've, I've known the character Farness since I was, I guess, 17 years old. So that's seven years of my life. Sorry, I'm eight years of my life. I forgot how old I am. That's eight years of my life. That's a pretty decent portion of my life where Farness has been a character in proximity to me. And to have you experience it for the first time and a conviction arc for the first time, this does good things in my brain. Farness and Guts first get acquainted, acquainted when... He, yeah, oh, look, we said the same thing. Isn't that nice? Um, they both first get acquainted when they um, when she captures him and he's <laughs> and they ask him... So, how come you killed all these hundreds of people? And he's like, I want to talk to my lawyer. He doesn't say that, but he won't talk. He's too tough and cool. And there's this initial confrontation between them. And this develops into an obsession for her. Because when he escapes, he takes her as prisoner. And he is pursued by demons. And shit gets really bad. Real bad. Hey, guys. You know how every time we talk about Berserk on this podcast, we have to give a huge disclaimer about sexual violence? This is the most notorious one, all of Berserk. Okay. Okay. (sighs) Flip. So, I want to say a quick thing first, because otherwise I will never get back around to it. I told you I watched one episode of the 2016 um, anime, uh, that episode actually yeah. had the scene where he breaks out of the camp and there's a great bit of music. And it actually was the only bit of that where I went, oh, this is actually kind of a, a cool scene. That That's nice. Mm, mm. Um, and then it lasted. 
Great. Uh, now on to this. So they're attacked by demons. And there is a very explicit and uh, grotesque and gratuitous, gratuitous scene. Yep, that's the magic word. Where a demon-possessed horse um, uh, assaults Farness. You should be more specific. Tries to assault Farness. He's lovingly referred to in the fandom as Rape Horse. It's awful. It's probably the most profane thing. No, the eclipse still exists, but it sucks. It's horrible. And this is something quite important, which I think it's good to kind of bring back. You mentioned the eclipse. The eclipse gives this... It is horrific, but it gives this kind of driving point for both the character's for, well, for the characters involved, and it drives the the plot and the narrative for the entirety of Berserk. Yeah, sure. This yeah. does not have the same narrative, or to be quite honest, character weight to it. And no, that's no. And, why... And because there are two... It yeah. bothers me a lot more. And why I read this, I'm just like, that could just not be there. In fact, I could have literally skipped over a couple of pages. I would have picked yeah. it up. I wouldn't have so, bothered me. The thing is, is, is that this specific scene has two instances of, like, uh, sexual horror. And one of them is a lot more provocative than the other. And it's not Rape Horse. Because Rape Horse is just hideously cartoonish. The scene later where Farnes gets posse- is then possessed by one of these demons. And it channels her inner desires in like a hideous way, which she then has to confront in herself, is plot-driven. And it's way more effective if it is grotesque. Like, there's no getting away from that. She sits directly above Guts's, the edge of Guts's sword and says to split her in half. Which is like, that is grotesque. But it also, it's, it's you know, it's at least like, a gag you know it's it's using a gag that's a fa- the phallic the phallic imagery of guts's sword which represents you know his big macho manliness um and it's sa- it's literally making it phallic it's saying i want to do a sadomasochistic sex act with you which will kill me which does link into the characters and does, it does. drive it like it drives it forward like that is i Who's think safe? way more forgivable than the horse Yes. A- absolutely. That scene is uncomfortable and unpleasant, but it's in I know the author n- knows you're going to feel those things. That's why it's there. You're yeah. meant to feel uncomfortable and unpleasant. You're probably meant to feel uncomfortable with the horse to be honest, but I feel it wasn't necessary. This drives narrative, no, drives good, character, again, gratuitous versus graphic. And you feel the discomfort that I think also Guts probably feels very strongly at the time, and Farnes feels horrifically afterwards once she's depossessed. It, to be honest, it, it did give mm-hmm. me a little reminder of like watching maybe like The Evil Dead. Seems like a scene that I would potentially see in something like that. But yeah, very intense, mm. um, and it worked for that scene. For that scene, yeah, I, I, I'm glad. I'm glad we're on the same page there. So at this point, we've set up some of our dominoes. We've got, um, you know, we, we've met the characters of Funess and Serpico. We've now given Funess her obsession with Guts, because he escapes out of this. 
And then it's time for the rest of the story to begin. And and what happens is that Guts has his second, his next, second? His, his latest meeting with the Skull Knight. And he gets given, like, an omen. You get told, hey, you should really go check in on Casca. It's been a while. Shit could get real bad. Yeah, and he does. And this, I, I can see where you can see a split in this arc, to be fair would be he goes to check back in on Cusker. We see Rickon again, who is doing... Rickert, not Rickon. It's Rickon. That's in Game of Thrones, isn't it? It is Game of Thrones. Rickert, who's doing, relatively speaking, well. He's doing great. He's happy. He's got a little friend. And I really like, there's a great scene here. Is This is where we have the sword graveyard scene, yes? Yeah, that's right. What a... Firstly, great metaphor to remind you of the scale of what events have happened. And also, Mm -hmm. just seeing the two different approaches to processing trauma. This is a great bit of berserk about not Mm. just showing a character suffering trauma, which is big emphasis, but also how the different characters process trauma. And how one can lead to maybe a slightly happier life, even if it's in the more traditional action edgelord hero that we kind of want to follow. It is the healthier option, which is that Rick- he gets to commemorate the dead. He celebrates them. He celebrates them, and he remembers them fondly. He grieves and them. Guts still. is possessed with avenging them, and it's so nicely done. I like the fact that Guts has this moment. We kind of he's then I, I don't know if it's directly said, but I get the impression that Guts is just like, I recognise this is probably was the better approach, but I can't do that. I mean, you're wrong. Because that's what the exact opposite of that happens in this scene. Well, he goes to re-meet the, 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 the sword man, the blacksmith, Godo, who created his sword. And he says, it's not even metaphor because Goto says it explicitly. He makes actual similes directed at Guts. He says, you are like this sword, chipped and broken and abused. And he explicitly... You know, he calls him out. He says, you fucked up. And the reason why he fucked up is that Casca's gone. Casca wandered off and got lost. If you haven't listened to our previous episodes, listen, what are you doing? Seriously, read Berserk. If you've listened to this far and you haven't thrown up already, go read Berserk. It's great. Casca's gone insane after the events of the eclipse. She's wandered off. She's lost. And that wouldn't have happened if Guts had stuck around. It's his fault. Yeah, he prioritised the vengeance over actually caring for those around him. And this is the moment. This is the declarative moment where Guts is told to look inside. As his sword is repaired from the damage of the last two years, you know, a, a representation of the abuse that he's put himself through by hurling himself into battle over and over and over again, going beyond his limits. As he rests for the night as the sword is being repaired... He has to reflect on his responsibility for Casca and what he wants to be. He's confronted by the Beast of Darkness. And he makes the titular conviction. He stays up through the night. He reflects on his desire, what he wants in the world, about what he's lost and what he wants to get back. And he realizes that the thing he wants more than anything is to protect Casca. That's what's most important. And he makes the conviction, I'll never lose her again. Oh dear. I didn't realise that. That's what the arc was named after. I, I don't know why. I kind of thought like maybe conviction was more tied into convicted. 
like because like you know, we do a lot of like criminality. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, the convict arc. Yeah, no, okay, yeah, that makes a lot more sense. So I don't know why I read it and that just didn't click. Or it was like, I thought it was more about like the Holy See and their conviction to like hunting heretics and just it was named after the fact we were dealing with them. That's nice. That's a nicer tie-in. Okay, cool. So back to... You also get some cool new armour. Yeah, it does. It's a great design. I like it, the fact that Guts... Do you know what? It's actually real props here to the fact that Characters change their outfits quite regularly in Berserk. And you might think that's a silly thing to say, but you know what? You read a lot of comic books and even other manga, the few other mangas I've read, that is not a common thing. If it's a thing, it's like a big event to show like a big transformation. God changes his outfit quite a bit, particularly over the Golden Age. The Golden Age especially, he has a bunch of different looks. It's a bit more consistent in this part of the manga. You know, like... um. He has a distinct outfit for the Black Swordsman arc, and he has a distinct outfit from this moment on. But even that's going to change. Just a side note. I know you're talking about, like, he's had these two years and all the fights he's been in. Do you ever get the impression that, like, because we see sort of two de- no three demons that he specifically goes and fights. Do you imagine that there's actually been loads of other, like, Black Swordsman-style stories? That just oh fun yeah they they say that almost explicitly in the Lost Children arc they're like we keep going to these different places and everywhere we go there's a pile of corpses I wouldn't it's actually there's a specific number is stated at a certain point uh, that guts of sword has bathed in the blood of a thousand demons but I love the fact that in Berserk that's like yeah that's the number guys anywhere else I'd be like just a n- nice lyrical speaking Berserk's like no yeah a thousand killed a hundred men that was like one chapter yeah. Canon- canonical and actual hundred men, for sure. Also, by the way, I've been rereading, as as I've said in the podcast before, I've been slowly making my way through the inheritance cycle, and I was really annoyed when I got to Brisinger and and, and Roran killed uh, 193 men. I was like, that's not fair. That's too much. Berserk's 100 men is just right. It's, mm, it's just right. You can't be tougher than Guts. That's not fair. I think it's that, like, you get too big, it becomes like a statistic. You lose track. And also what makes Guts so good is that it, that's back when he's like kind of still... I know he's always human, but that's when he's like just a man, you know? Four things get weird. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this is a great section. I think it introduces new characters, which work really well. And we, you're right, we get this the real point, the driving, the narrative drive for the next bit of the plot, which is let's reunite Guts with Cusca. That's what matters. And that's right. That brings us to the Tower of Conviction and a slew of new characters and all wacky stuff goes down and new horrors and new trauma that our characters get to process through. To round off this section, then, I'm going to read the conviction itself. What is Guts promising himself? What dreams is he focusing on? What's burning me ain't just this black flame. The campfire from those days still burns in my chest. That's right, wasn't this last feeble flame left to me? All that barely kept me from being consumed by the black flame? What have I done? Did I again? Did I go and do it again? Did I lose something before I even noticed it again? Again, without even knowing? Without even realizing I'd thrown it from the palm of my hand? No, not yet. 
The flame, it's not yet burned out. Not yet. It's not too late. This time, I swear, I'll never lose her again. Just imagine Barry with lots of gorgeous art. Okay, Geordie, so now, actually, the conviction arc. The conviction bit of the conviction arc. Yes, the conviction bit of the conviction arc, which actually isn't called the conviction bit of the conviction arc. It's called the rebirth ceremony part of a conviction arc. But it takes place of a Tower of Conviction. Yeah, I'm going to notice, like, the Tower bit. I think Rebirth is like, it's like Return of the King. It's like too much of a spoiler. <laughs> yeah, it's... For... What, what would... Actually, I don't want to get bogged down in this, but what would you call the Return of the King if you had to rename it? What if you had to rename every part of a Lord of the Rings trilogy? Okay, well, firstly, Return of the King was actually the publisher's name. Tolkien wanted to call it The War of the Ring. That's a good name. That was the original working title. That's a great name. Yeah, I know. Right, For that did. exact argument, then yeah. how would and it... also the Return of the King happens surprisingly early in Return of the King. Like the scouring of the Shire is like a whole other section of the book after that, and the King's already returned. It does two things. That title, it well three things. One spoiler. Two, it mm. puts too much emphasis on Aragorn as a main character, which he is not. And then three, you're right. It gives a sense of too great a sense of a false climax. And that's why people really sometimes don't, I think, don't jive with the scoring of the Shire. Because they're like, well, why is this happening after a climax? It's like, no, the Hobbits are our main characters, haven't had their climax yet. Mm. This is the climax. It's about the return home. It's the there, it's the back again bit. Anyway, mm. what do we call the other ones? I don't two know. I suppose hard. you could... Two Towers is really difficult. Because it's basically I, two different books. It's the Aragorn I, bit and the Frodo bit. I was going to say, like, you could call it something like the realms of men or maybe something like that, but I just don't think it advised because then, yeah, you're leaving out the Frodo and Sam bit. So, so Two Towers is great. Fellowship, um, how would I rename Fellowship? Fellowship is actually pretty well named. It is. They're all great, apart from Return of the King. Why don't we just forget those sub-names and just call the whole thing The Lord of the Rings? There we go. That's not helpful, Duncan. We can't do a full episode on just the entire trilogy. Oh, we're to break it down more than that. Are you saying we should do like nine episodes on each individual book within the various books? I think so. I think there's six books, isn't there? So I, I, I think there's enough content there. Genuinely, if we, we went down that road, I would want to break Lord of the Rings up that way because it is dense. I'm really not looking forward to that. That sounds horrible. <laughs> oh, mate. Uh, that, is, that is my place in fantasy. But back to Berserk, Conviction Arc. So much happens here, Geordie. This is a event-heavy bit of the manga. That's true. Beat for beat, like, there are just a lot of events you have to get through. It's, I think what really makes this arc work so well is the sort of cat and mouse nature of it. It's all about Guts pursuing Casca, but Casca keeps getting swept away to other locations. She's off in a refugee camp, she's been taken in by the cultists, she's been captured, she's in immense danger, and Guts has to go A to B to C to D to E to catch up to her. Just to go back to that Lord of the Rings thing, I did think of alternative titles. You could continue on the theme oh of The God. Hobbit, so you'd and it would be in that naming scheme, so it'd be like The Hobbit, The Hobbits, The Men, The Dark Lord, something like that, The Wizard. See? It's a great idea. That's terrible. That's actually bad. That's a really bad story. Yeah, so really lots of things here. So you're right. I think focusing in on character is a better way to tackle this because there's so many new and interesting characters. Our old characters go for really genuinely interesting arcs. Mm. There's a lot here. Should we start with a fun but kind of low-key player? Because in this arc, we're introduced to a new plucky... 
happy-go-lucky mischievous sidekick in Isidro. Isidro. It's Isidro. The problem there is that I'm pretty sure in Japanese it's pronounced Isidoro, which is like way easier to say than Isidro. It means stone thief. I'm going to have to go with Isidro because that's what's on the page to me. But I'm happy either way. Jordi, I have very little to say about this character. He's introduced. I like where he's sort of set up. I do. And compared to Puck... Mm. He's a plucky little yeah, thief. He's, he's a like, scoundrel. I'm a little bit of a little bit of comic relief here. I'm kind of tagging along. He's more part of the world than Puck is on that scale. I like him. But to be honest, he, I don't think he actually does a lot in this arc. That's basically true. He's useful and literally he throws some rocks at some cultists. And like he gets kind of like there's one bit where Guts like relies on him to help out. And he lets Guts down. And I actually really like this moment where... You know, he says, like, listen, you take Oscar away. I'll hold off this crazy goat man. That's a crazy goat man. It's great. And um, and Isidro screws up. He doesn't save the day. And he comes back to Guts with this big shame-faced look on his face. And it's like, oh, that's a surprising moment of depth for this character, who's previously been really irreverent. But actually, you see a genuine moment of shame for having let Guts down. So when he has immediately... Uh, he makes it up for the incredible James Bond bungee jump scene, where he flings himself off a wall, yep. cuts someone's off while they're like burning on the pyre, and then pulls away with him. So he has this moment, even if they are slightly more cartoonish. But yeah, no, nice character, but I just, there's more deep characters to talk about, especially when it comes to Allies to Guts and Allies to Cusker. And there's a new mm. group of side characters who I get the impression are probably unique to this part of the story. I imagine they don't come back. I'm not saying shit. I want to talk to my lawyer. We get, as reference at the start of this episode, the friendly group of sex workers who are operating in this refugee camp in the shadow of the Tower of Conviction where they're all gathering because the world's going to hell. And you know what? I reviewed my notes ahead of this episode and I've already forgotten all their names. Is the main one called Lupine? I thought it was Luca. I thought it was Luca and Nina were the two main Nina ones. Nina is for sure right. I'm, you think you're right, but it's Luca. Yes. It would be a good thing if her name was Lupine, because that would mean it was wolfish, and she-wolf was like an old word for a prostitute back in ancient Rome. See, mate, now you are outstaging the author. You, you should have written Berserk. It's... That, that's heresy right there. You should be tied to a stake and burned. So these are some really interesting characters, because what they have here is, firstly, they're not the super soldiers that Guts is. They're not magical. It's again, it's getting down to that more down-to-earth perspective, a bit like we had Jill in the last section. But we also get, I think, two between the character of Luca and Nina, two very different outlooks in this awful situation. You've got Luca, who is the absolute best person in the world, who is doing the right thing, pulling together, being like, we've got to band together. You know, the world might be going to hell, but actually, if we're just good to each other, it can't be that bad. Like, the worst things that happen is what people do to people. So we're just going to be stick together. And you've got Nina, yeah. who is not coping well. Mm. And is, I would say in pretty much every part of this, whenever Nina's given a decision, she makes the wrong one. She makes the wrong That's choice true. every Nina time. Nina is, like, is, is truly a tragic character. And I mean that in like the Greek sense. Like She is doomed in all the decisions she makes. Uh, for one thing... Uh, she's dying of syphilis, which is a, not a great way to start the story. You know, you, already you're in, you're going in a bad way. Um, but she re- always makes the selfish decision. 
But the selfish decisions aren't ones that help her. You know, she gives in to, like, um, she joins a fucking cult. That's not a good idea. But, you know, a lot of people get dragged into cults or in bad situations. In fact, that's when people get dragged into cults. But also, like, she will give up Casca um, with the slightest amount of resistance and then blame herself for being a coward and, and despise herself for it. And the, the, thing, the thing about it is that what makes the difference in her and Luca stand out so well is that Luca isn't a saint. Like, she's no... She's not... Actually, I was supposed to say she's no Mother Teresa, but she's much better than Mother Teresa. But... You know, she slaps Nina across the face and spanks her. She's not unwilling to, like, take a hard hand when she has to. But the key difference is that she is the collectivist. You know, she's always looking out for the unit, never for the individual. And that's so nice to have. It's such a breath of fresh air in this story. Well, let's be honest, you can definitely get to points in Berserk where it's like, everyone is awful. Every character we Mm. meet is either selfish or actively murdering others. So... Yeah, like, in this arc in particular, a whole refugee camp believes they can exercise the evil they're experiencing through sacrificing a heretic, believing she's a witch. It's supposed to be, you know, a commentary on religion, but it also goes to show mob mentality, how people who are desperate could be driven to do truly evil things. And now we have this small collective of people who everyone thinks are immoral because of the work they do as sex workers. Um, they are the moral ones. They're the ones who are always looking out for each other. So, going in a bit more context here, at the start of the story, they are the ones that first find Casca. She has wandered off, mm. she has lost her sense of who she is and where she is, and they mm-hmm. are taking care of her. Again, because Luca is just sees sort of a fellow soul in need and extends a helping hand. She's not working there, but they are supporting mm-hmm. her. So, great. Wonderful character. You get something? And I think one more thing that has to be said, and the reason why I think it's significant these characters are in Berserk in particular, is that these are female sex workers in a series which constantly shows gratuitous sexual violence and i think it is significant that this group is not just a group of nice sex workers they're a co-op they share with each other when luca gets given a pearl necklace a, a physical pearl necklace that wasn't a euphemism like an actual piece of jewelry she breaks it and shares it with everyone saying we you know we all have to look out for each other they're the only people who are actually trying to build an equitative small society. And I'm, I like that we're giving that break. And I also like having Nina, a fundamentally selfish character, in the mix. Mm-hmm. Because I think it then just not only does it kind of create that strong contrast, but it also shows that like you don't have to be an absolute saint to be part of this kind of co-op nice society. You know, it it's all people trying. Uh, no, I, I, I disagree. I think it's exactly that. If you event, if you are like Nina, you end up being selfish and cruel, then the sympathy of others cannot eventually save you. Nina, at the end of her story, has this realization, which is that she's not good for these other people, and she separates herself, and she's pursuing her own kind of redemption afterwards, but she's no longer harming the people who've always looked after her. I'm trying to think if I fully agree with that. So, I mean, I, uh, yeah, I suppose I suppose that is a, definitely the sentiment it ends on. 
So I will give you that on Nina. At least she is not being selfish in the fact that she recognised she's the problem and that's why she's removing herself. Yeah. So that is nice. It's also like, there's also a theme of forgiveness in there. Like, I can't remember his name. He's a very minor character, but her boy toy. Oh, Joachim? He betrays her and she betrays him. What? It's like Joachim? I, yeah. Oh, there is. If it's Joachim, if, if it is that, then it's, then it's, um, uh, Joachim, right? Like a Jewish name? Like a Hebrew name? Not a clue. What's his... Joachim? Yep. It's like an actual... Name. Biblical name. It's Joachim, idiots. I do like the fact that they're just there at the end. They're like, okay, we've both screwed each other over. Shall we just keep going together? And they're like, yeah. Yeah. Why not? So, okay. So... I think we've danced around (laughs) Nina quite a bit. We haven't actually dived into Nina. Geordie. And And I don't think we should say any more. I think we're done. Other than that, yeah, I like her as a character. She's very interesting. I think so too. I think she's a good heel. I also want to say that there are definitely there is one particular moment with Nina where I did go, yes, finally, someone's representing a bit more of me in this story. <laughs> okay, go on, Duncan. Is it a scene where she hands someone over to a depraved cult? No, it's the scene when she hands someone over to the depraved church. Okay. It's, no, it's just a tor- there's a torture scene with Nina. Well, it's not even a scene. Nina's taken off to be tortured. No. And she, where everyone else is like, hold it together, hold it together. Everyone else, she like immediately, she has like a scratch on her finger and it's like, okay, I'm talk. And I was just like, do you know what? Fine, fair. I feel you. I would not hold up that well either. <laughs> so. So, um, speaking of the church, should we talk about some of the villains in this particular arc? I mean, you could argue that the villain of this arc is just the concept of organized religion itself. But it's strongly represented. Kintaro Miura really had a bee in his bonnet when he was writing the conviction arc. I think the Jehovah's Witness had been to his door one too many times. He embodies this sort of organized religion. I think it's not, it does do a good job to kind of separate, you know, having general faith and the organized structure of religion to a quite a nice bit, particularly at the end. But yes, we get a character of Mosgus. Mosgus? Mosgus. Mosgus. Who is the Inquisitor? He is the mm. torturer. He will ra- strike out and find the heretics. And he has his gang of torturers who go with him, who are all misfits and outcasts. Okay, Geordie, I'm going to be honest, I thought they were okay. That's interesting. Mosgus is a pretty popular antagonist. I really like him. I think he's so... He combines being really silly with really scary. I mean, he has a very stupid face. It's square and flat. That's because he keeps and slamming it flat into the ground. He, yeah, he kowtows every day and it, it's flattened his face. Okay, I'm going to tell you why maybe I was a little bit... felt a little bit weak on these characters. And I, I do mean as a collective as well. Uh, Mosgus and his Inquisitors. I, I mean, just if you wanted... Think, if you include the... Yep. I wanted more, Geordie. Like, we get this little okay. moment with one of the Inquisitors where he's talking to Fer- Fairness and he's saying, you know, because he's found us all, we're all outcasts and he brought us all in and he's like, look, this is how our struggles... And I'm like, great. But we don't get... We get that for one of them and then the rest just kind of get killed. And I'm like cool i assume you were all interesting as well and for muscus himself while he was interesting i didn't get any real sense of like how did you come to be i just wanted a little bit more of like 
Where is Boy Muskers? How did this escalate? Mm. Also, are you the no. only one like this? Or is the entire church organization like this? How did you become like this? Okay, so I'm just disagree with you from an extremely strong sense because you have you've made a mistake of thinking that Mosgus is uh, a character in himself. Mosgus doesn't have a backstory. His backstory is that he's a radical believer in his faith. He is an extension. He represents the extension of where Farness could go. That's why he's crazy. That's why he is so fervently and dangerously religious because Farness is also an inquisitor. And Farnes also destroys people because she's a bit of a psycho, just like Mosgus is an absolute psycho. The power which the religion, the, the institution of religion gives them, gives them impunity to inflict harm on other people. Mosgus isn't actually a true believer. No, sorry, I've said it wrong. Mosgus is a true believer, but his way of expressing his belief is through extreme sadistic violence. Just like Farnes. Farnes backs away from that because she sees what a monster it makes Mosgus. And you can point to the fact that in one scene they say, oh, Mosgus has given us all a chance, a place to be. But you know the real big guy? And they reveal at the end that, like, he's like, he's got like a cherubic childlike face. I don't want any more to be explored in that because these characters represent a really ugly trope and one which I kind of have to overlook in this part of Berserk, which is the idea that having a disability makes you a monster. So I would rather not look into them anymore because the further you look at it, the worse it's going to get. I think that was kind of my issues that I was like, okay, I understand that these people, due to their, some of their disabilities, have become social outcasts and it's maybe meant to pull on the idea of you know society has done this but it kind of didn't actually and that's why i was like okay you've got something here that could be pretty okay if you just flesh it out a bit more and because it doesn't it leaves it hanging in a bit of an uncomfortable space for me there's something quite similar early on i think the torturer in the golden age that tortures griffith they also plays into this trope a bit and it was a bit icky yeah there. that's true he does and it's, it's like very true okay, that's just one character, maybe that's fine. And then when it's like, and here's a gang of six of them, you're like, ooh, no, 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 no. Yeah, no, it's for sure. That's that's troubling part. And I don't think anything like that really happens in Berserk again. So he got that out of his system, I suppose. I mean, obviously the demons are scary, but they're scary because they're demons. But, okay, here's another then thing I have, Muscus, and you feel free, Geordie, to just be like, Duncan, you're wrong. Muscus I, I will. Is Okay, you're right. Muscus represents this extremity when it comes to taking his religion, how he expresses religion through violence, and he is a great kind of look in the future of Farness. That's amazing. I don't think, as a character and as a like a moral linchpin, as a theme, Muscus really weighs out guts very well. I don't look at Muscus and guts and go, "Yes, you two, you two shall fight." Only in the sense of Muscus messes with Cusker and everyone who messes with Cusker guts kills. So what we're talking about here is a different side of things. So on one hand, Mosgus represents the extremity of Farnes. You know, he is what Farnes could become if she continues to go down this path. And that is, she places all her faith in God. Now, on one hand, Mosgus is supposed to represent the, the, the extremity of that, the extreme cruelty and the extreme faith. And Guts is the opposite of that because he is the apostate. They use that word in this story a lot. He's the apostate. 
He is the heretic. He doesn't believe in God. And this comes down to the absolute core principle of Berserk. Beyond even its thing about, like, you have to struggle to have a good life. It's the theme of destiny. What is destiny, Duncan? But it is the will of God. And Guts has to believe that there is no God. Or that if God does exist, he has to be defied. And that his will isn't immutable. So Mosgus says, I do this in the name of a Lord. And Guts says, tell your God to leave me alone. Which is one of the coldest lines of the series as he kills Mosgus, who has turned into a fucked up angel man. Not gonna lie, that is an incredibly awesome scene. And I do it get that. I get that Muscus. Like he, Muscus, he also puts in, bombs in his vagina chest. That also happens. Muscus, you know, he's imposing himself onto Guts and Custer's story. I just didn't feel like he was mm-hmm. naturally an antagonist to Guts. I do see what you mean. Muscus is set. Muscus is saying, "Follow the Lord. The Lord has a plan." And Guts is saying, "I don't care about the plan." I do see that. Yeah. Can we just grab that point, yeah, I, though, about him turning into an angel? Geordie, was this meant to be, like, a god hand thing? Because all the other angels all have, like, like demons, so they all get their, like, baylets and that, and do, like, a sacrifice. These guys just sort of transformed. I'm like... But you know how they transform, right? No, not super clear. Okay, so that's fair enough. Maybe you just missed it, because it happens quite fast. The egg of the new world, who we haven't brought up yet, but we'll bring him up in a momentarily, because we're talking about villains right now. The egg of the new world pricks them each. And he imbues them with demonic power, and he turns them into angels. And the thing is, is that, like, you can see very obviously when people get turned into demons, it represents some part of their inner desire, right? Hmm. That's why Rosine became an elf. Lady, fairy, woman. Okay. And you're saying Muscus, deep down, he was always a, a rock. They stone think they're solid. true. They're, no, no. Don't go, don't go to the extreme yet. Don't be, don't be like that. They turn into angels first. They grow feathery white wings because they believe they are true bastions of the Lord. But just like Rosine... When they tap into the true extent of that power, it's dark and hideous. She goes from being this fair elf fairy lady to being this yonic monstrosity. And the monstrosity, because it is truly evil demon power deep down, he turns to this weird, fucked up, stone-curling angel man thing. With arms that hit like cannon fire. And he has a Bible in his chest. All right, all right, okay. I do see that. So it, it is part of the demon's power. So there's no there's yeah. no sign in any of this of the actual god being like a power, is there? No point in Berserk so far have they ever established that. If there is a god that's beyond the demons, they exist or has any power. I'm shrugging. I I mean I'm like I said. I I, I you're gonna have to talk to my lawyer. <laughs> All right then. Okay, so that's yeah, that's just how I felt about Muscus. I did find him entertaining, and I liked the fights. He just felt to me like oh, I'm going to compare it to something, and you're going to hate me for it. Do you ever feel like in like Naruto when? <laughs> okay, I can't wait to see where this is going. You've got that like there's like the evil organization that had the like red clouds on their cloaks. So their name has skipped my mind Akatsuki. right now. And it's just like, okay, there's like 12 of you. And like, 
maybe the top two of you are the real villains and the other eight are just fights to go through. Muscles just felt like a bit of a fight, like Guts had to fight a man in this arc. Well, all the theming is good and the story is good. I just looked at Muscles like, you're just here a little bit so we can have a cool fight. I don't think you are a natural part of Guts's story. He's because he's a part of Farnes's story. Uh, sorry, uh, Farnes isn't my protagonist. Uh, Farnes is one of the protagonists of this story. She's the redeemed villain. She starts as a villain in the Iron Binding Chain whatever arc. And by the end of this story, she's fighting for the right. She's fighting for the... Sorry, she's not fighting for the right. She's fighting for the good. She, she decides to fight against evil, which she recognizes in the organization, she, organization she's a part of. And then she rejects it at the end. Oh, okay then. Yes. I do see that and I do like it. And I did enjoy this. I just want to say, I did enjoy this. I just don't think... And we'll see how we go down the I line. I understand. But I will probably I remember Rosine more than I'm going to like, maybe remember Muscus. And everyone else loves him. I, but I was just like, I think, cool. Yeah, Rosine is probably a better antagonist than Muscus, but I, I think he's really fun. Also, he has a Dark Souls enemy based on him. Oh, does he? I yeah, in Dark Souls 3. I've played that game. I should know. See, thought- okay, so in Dark Souls 3, you go to this, like, one section where, like, there's been, like, a hanging, and there's a priest there with a broad hat <gasps> and kind of a flat face, and when he charges you, he sets himself on fire. You're right. Yeah, and the dead... Uh... That guy's based on Moscus. That's so cool. Okay. And the guys around him all have black hoods, he- hoods on them, don't they? They do indeed. I'm going to have to replay Dark Souls 3 and do it probably as a two-handed... Fighter. I've tried several times. I'm, yeah, don't do it with the Ultra Great Sword. Uh, the first time I found the Ultra Great Sword, I was like, oh, I can be guts! And then it's a bad weapon. It's a really bad weapon. It's way too slow. I did Dark Souls 2 with the uh, Great Sword doing a guts role but Dark Souls 3, I've always had an issue. So I played it through once as a sort of mm. dexterity strength field kind of split, and that worked great, and it was really fun. I've started that game about three more times, trying to do like a magic build or a pyromancer, and then like which which game? Dark Souls three. Okay. And I just can't get into it playing thing, anything other than like just a straight up swordsman. I just think the game, I don't know, compared to like Dark Souls one and two, where I found it really equally as fun to be a pyromancer or wizard or like a brute with a giant club. Dark Souls three, I just feel like it's. It's so perfect to play it, sort of just sword and shield. I find it really hard to enjoy with the other classes. My two favorite characters in Dark Souls 1 was my completely naked Zweihander wielder, who rolled around hitting people with his big sword. A lot of fun. Great. I had to actually learn how to parry at the end of the game to defeat the final boss. Like, I literally started a new save just to learn how to parry, and then... I um I fucking slaughtered him when I actually figured out how to parry with my like with my naked open hand, and uh, my other one was a miracle user called Jesus, and he was so good throwing lightning bolts and healing himself. Ugh, good times. Nah, my best character ever was Dark Souls Two. It was a short ginger character with two dual widow, two blades, power stars <laughs> called Moonglum. Best. Yeah, very nice. Playing those games without shields is such a different experience. Loves it. Right. <laughs> So that's how I feel about the the villains of the church. But you mentioned another villain, the 
Born egg, egg thing? for a new world. Egg for a new world. Yeah. So he emphasizes the part of the story about like being an outsider. Because obviously Guts is an outsider and Casca is an outsider and Mosgus's followers are outsiders. Um, and it's about someone being completely rejected by society. Uh, likewise, because he's ugly. Um, he actually, I guess, is mostly like the titular outsider in H.P. Lovecraft's The Outsider, and, like, he's so revolting that people are, like, actually afraid of him and run away from him. But he's actually more of, like, a, a golem character. Like, he's literally sent down to live in a cave. Yes, and I enjoyed that. I also like the fact that he has this little moment where he just go, oh, if only Musgus had found me, then I could have lived a happy life among his torturers. It's like, wow, you have you have gone far down the road that you're looking mm. back at those guys as, like, the idyllic family. <laughs> yeah. And the thing about it is, like, um, obviously all of the apostles, they, they get, they, they make their summoning because they have a wish. And he has, he's significant because he has the, the most potent wish of all. They all want selfish rings. He wants a more perfect world. That's his desire. And they give him the chance. They can't fix it for him like that. That's not how... They just can't do that with a regular apostle transformation, but they can make it so that he is the egg from which will be born a new, more perfect world. And he becomes a part of a, like, semi-eclipse. Not a true eclipse, because that's the will of destiny. This is, um... Something much stranger. There's a wonderful, wonderful moment. My favorite moment in this arc, aside from the reunion between Guts and Casca, is the moment when Guts is standing at the top of the partially collapsed tower, and he realizes that it's collapsed in such a way as to make a hand. That's so cool. It is incredible imagery, and it's a, I think it's a really nice moment of... Guts, who at this point has been kind of like fighting his way through the church to get back to Casca. It's like a big, like ominous reminder that all of this is still just part of the, the bigger plan. Mm. Yeah. Like, now, what he thinks he's doing, if it may respects, if he hadn't rocked up, then the tower wouldn't have collapsed as it did. Like, he's still kind of part of destiny, pushing things in certain directions. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. In that, that specific thing would have needed to happen because he was there, but obviously... Could, could have happened without him. I do see that. But I think it's his way of going, oh. He was supposed to die, so. So inconvenient when people don't die when they're meant to. But that's what Void keeps saying. He even and Slard keep going, oh my god, can you believe this guy? Come on. This guy's going to get to a point where they have to, like, properly start recognising Guts. It's like, wow, this guy's like a, like a problem. Like, all they ever do is, like, ugh, puny mortals. There must be a point where they're like, Oh my, we, we did not account for this. He's no, um, I don't think they do have to do that. <laughs> the day Guts put his sword through them, they might just... I Even then, man, even then. So, um... Yes, so the egg. I liked it, I like its design. It is It is literally like an egg with it's sort so of weird. body parts on and the multiple arms. It's a cool creature. I wouldn't say he's the most profound villain. Uh, I think he's just a teeny bit too weird to latch onto. But I do like um, this weird trifecta you get between him, Luca, and Skull Knight. It's such an unusual pairing. I mean, 
it is to the point which when you said that, I thought, when, when did that? Oh, yes, it did. You've got an immortal, long-lived knight. We've got the upbeat sex worker. And where we've got this thing that gave made a pact with demons. I don't know. I like the fact that he tells Luca his story. He gives Luca a lot more, I think, like self... Luca in particular. He singles her out as someone else who's on the bottom, but still has compassion for other people. It, I think it does a lot to almost like put Luca at that bit high, like oh, like all this even the world, and he and it's not like any of our main characters that he looked at. He looks at Luca, this side character, and go, oh yeah, you're the goodness, you're why the world is worth saving, and I do like the fact or that remaking. I, well, yes, remaking because in his mind, like he is remaking it for people like Luca, not for Luca specifically, but for people mm. like her, and I do really like the fact that this particular character. Compared to all the other demonic villains, I genuinely do see that in its, it's his, its mind, it's yep. doing a truly good thing. I agree, and that's and in the end, he's happy because he thinks, yes, I've done it. I've accomplished my dream. I'm going to make the world a better place. Who knows? Maybe he's right. Maybe his wish will come true. Hmm. Hmm. So. Duncan, this is something which up until this point, I don't think we've mentioned in any of our episodes. Like, maybe we mentioned it last year, but I don't remember. Have we talked about Guts and Casca's baby? No, we have not. And this is going to be the weirdest thing to describe to someone who has not read this. Guts and Casca have a ghost demon... Fetus demon? Fetus baby who i believe it's my interpretation was that casca was pregnant with guts's child before the eclipse had a miscarriage as mm-hmm. a result of that event and this is the ghost demon fetus baby that has been following guts and even appears in the black swordsman arc yeah it's um it is it's way way back there um but it's specifically corrupted by griffith like, that is um, stated outright that, like, his rape of Casca corrupted the baby. And this sort of gives it a bit of an odd relationship because it follows Guts about. I have a very unhappy look on my face, by the way. And this particular ghost, I'm going to call it a ghost, except if it's slightly similar to a demon, doesn't seem to be outright hostile to Guts. Well, initially, it actually kind of looks hostile, and Guts thinks it's hostile. It thinks it's evil and that it's taunting him. But actually, it's revealed throughout the story. It is protecting both of them. Like, it is shielding them from evil, and specifically Casca the most. Like, it explodes the sarcophagus and summons other demons to save her. So where does this... Ghost fetus culminate, and what's the point in the plot? Jordi, this is kind of hard to explain. So, the egg of the world finds it, says how you are... It's, like, super tired and dying. It's, like, it's done everything it can to save Casca. The egg is, like, ah, like a fellow soul. Here, no, like, peace inside me. And appears to eat it. Or, like, take it inside. And then it's made very explicit that 
This fetus is what is then growing inside the egg and is reborn when the egg of the world hatches at the culmination of this arc. And I... Yeah. (laughs) When the egg hatches... who should step out? Are we ready to go there just yet? Are we ready to go there just I yet? I think we need. We can't discuss the ghost fetus until we describe what the ghost fetus grows up into. Okay. When the egg fetus grows up to be a big, handsome baby boy, it's fucking Griffith. He's back. And not as Femto, and not as a spectral hawk to fight Zod in a, in a very in a one-off scene which we should have mentioned earlier i guess it's him he's back in mortal flesh naked very naked so canon griffiths is guts and custard's child and jesus and jesus reborn yes yeah how, how did you feel duncan upon seeing griffith come back uh, to be honest it was actually a little bit mixed I kind of sure. felt that Griffith was going to be this far... I, I was presumed he's going to be this far-off villain, that he's going to exist behind mm. the mask of Femto for pretty much the whole series, and it was going to be Guts would have to go for a lot of people to get to him and then eventually get to him. But I do enjoy the fact that he's back, because to be honest, he was really fun to have in the Golden Age. Like He was a fun villain to physically be around. And I don't think what made Griffith so enjoyable wasn't just the, when he did... like over evil things like the demons that's not what made him so good it was when he was nice or manipulative and like had minor conflicts like that's what made him interesting and i don't think he can be like that looking like femto he <laughs> can do that best looking like griffith and being in the world and yeah because femto can't just exist in the world he has to exist in another dimension and you can only be brought to him not the other way around so now Griffiths can be an active player. And I think part of the interesting things about Berserk is while we do have a lot of these big demon fights, I think it's most entertaining when we're dealing with humanity. One of the main things is that humanity in many respects is its own worst enemy and people can be just as horrible. And I think you need Griffiths acting, actively being an agent in the world to kind of emphasise those points. He shouldn't be a Disney figure. He's a great character. I want him closer to Guts. I, I mean, I personally want him very far away from Guts, but that's just my prerogative. Oh, well. You should read some fan fiction, mate. So, Jordy, can you tell me, Do does Griffith then become, like, I've just said what I want him to be. Is that what we're getting? I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> Do I near, really need to get my lawyer in here? I'm not going to tell you shit. All right. Okay. Well, let's talk about something. The power's in your hand, Duncan. You get to decide when we keep reading. Uh, and I will tell you this. He explicitly says, he says out loud his super objective the next time he appears in the story. I can't remember what Griffith's super objective is. I imagine it's obviously to be like king of the world or to make like a utopia. That's the thing. That's always the thing I like about these villains. And it's something that you don't always get. Something like I always think when I like read Star Wars, it's like someone wants to be the emperor of the universe, and you're like, okay, great. What does that actually mean to you on a day-to-day basis? Like, what does Griffith want, and what does Griffith want his day-to-day to be like? Does he want to rule the world to make it a horrible place, or does he genuinely want to rule the world and like look after? The I will country? tell you, as someone who's read Berserk a number of times, what he wants in the Golden Age, and I will just tell you this: I'm not going to tell you anything else about what happens in. He says, I want to rule a kingdom. Full stop. 
That's it. He doesn't say anything about being a good place to live. He doesn't give a shit about that. He just wants to be in charge. He grew up poor. He wants to be all high and mighty. That's what he wants. Sorry, Fair. I really just vented out. I fucking hate Griffith. Oh my god, I hate him. Of course I hate him, but I can't bring myself to truly hate him. He's just so I delightful <laughs> as a villain. I am built different. I can hate him with every fiber of my being. But I do think you're right that the story is better with him in it. And even though I actually have serious problems with the role Griffith plays in the story going forward, for sure it's a better series because he's back. That's good. And how do people respond to him being back? There is the emotional climax of this arc between Guts and Cusker. Yes. So this entire arc, I'm not going to specifics, it is this whole Guts is trying to get to Cusker and she's always just one step ahead. She's always being whisked away at the last minute or he gets to her and then someone attacks him and then he gets distracted and it's like, oh, just, just come together. Just be able to hug. And finally, at the climax, when Guts sees Griffith reborn in the world... And he's yeah. like, I am going to kill you, which I am interested in. He's overcome with rage. We get that that white eye motif. The background goes black. He then notices Cusco's behind him. She makes a noise and he turns aside, lets go of his desire to kill Griffiths and just goes to look after Cusco. It's wonderful. We definitely got to post that to Instagram. It's one of my all-time favorite moments of Berserk. In fact, people have asked me, what is the best page in comic books? And I have sent them that page. That is so heartwarming. This is, in many respects, this isn't just a combination of, like, the rebirth ceremony like guts arc and this this is the combination of guts arc since the first chapter since black swordsman it's oh yeah he's like this we then learn why he's like this and now finally he can move on this is the first true step forwards for guts as a character since the beginning for sure i mean aside from the conviction itself but this is the this is the fulfillment of the conviction and more importantly the commitment to the conviction. He says, I'll never lose her again. And then he puts aside his wants for what's actually important. That said, not knowing anything more about Berserk, I do think it could have been wrapped up in like one more chapter. It's got to just run forward and stab Griffith. Like surely that would not have been the case. It's like, <laughs> actually in hindsight, mate, <laughs> so many less people would have died if you could just like hold off on hugging Casca for like 10 minutes. That's funny. That's that's funny. It's, good. it's a good joke, Duncan. Killing Griffith. That's the thing. If you, I don't know. Oh, I just want to know so much more about how this world works in the future. Uh, like, if Griffith dies now, does he just go back to being Femto? Is it like he's caught in like this cycle? That's a great question, man. That's a great question. Or is it like the slug count? Would would the the God Hand just look at him and go like, "You failed. Off to the void to scream for eternity." That's a great question, man. Would he go to the abyss? That's a great question. Listen, Duncan, the power is in your hand. We don't have to make it a Halloween thing, you know? You could, you could, you could choose that we do this next week. I mean, next week is still Halloween, and we should probably have a bit more variety. But you could do it in November. I think I want a little bit more variety than that. Ah, I mean, I do too, actually. I think you're right. I think this is nice to we pace it out a little bit. My personal experience was when I read Berserk for the first time. I did read it through pretty fast like probably over the span of just 
a couple of weeks, and I personally regret that. I wish I had paced myself a little more, because moments like Griffith's return, I know I didn't savor them the way I should have. I didn't digest them. I just moved on to get to the next exciting action beat. Oh, I don't... Guts skydives off a tower to stab an angel man. That's admittedly extremely cool, but no, I do wish I had savored that stuff more. I think that's something that's very common and something that you can't really go back and experience again in the same way. Exactly. One of the things I know is how And that's why I'm really enjoying doing this with you and getting to experience part of it vicariously through you. And it's important because it does inform the the interwork kind of story the way something's released can you imagine so going very off topic now but like re- watching like say the rocky movies if someone had never seen rocky and you went okay one mm. night we're going to binge all of rocky one to six and then watch creed mm. it just you can't have the same feeling watching rocky no, balboa if you'd binged watch them in a day like other than watch waiting i mean i wasn't alive when the first rockies came out but i still saw them like 10 years before i watched rocky balboa so it was like oh he's mm. an old man now haha ha, ha. like it's not the same if you just watch them back to back yeah and also like the emotional whiplash you must get by the time you're on rocky 4 you know, after watching Rocky the same day, they are not even the same genre of movie. Like, Rocky 1 is not a sports movie. It's a story about being poor in Philadelphia. Uh, There's still boxing, but yeah. There certainly isn't a moment when he's on like, the boxing. international stage being like, no. you could change. You could change. If, if the two guys been to have each other can become friends maybe russia and united states can become friends as well of course world peace is that how berserk's gonna end it's gonna be guts just being like the demons can change and humanity can change and we can come together man so but yeah back to the point it, it is nice to have breaks i think and read things at a pace same thing with any book series if you follow it like as it comes out you feel the weight more yeah, you would say that. You would say that, Mr. Won't read the next Scholomance book. But it's like, with a villain, if it that villain like lives in your head in like a certain position for longer, then it feels longer, even if there's not actually more content of that. And I think that's really important sometimes to recognise. And that's why, Jordi, we probably won't be continuing, continuing with Berserk for at least a few months. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. I will say, Duncan... If you want answers to some of the big questions of, like, what is going on in the wider world of Berserk, that's what's coming next. The next part of Berserk is the world-building section of Berserk. Something I think it needs, because there's definitely an element, particularly in the Golden Age, where I felt that some of the world-building was being doing a little bit too ad hoc. Like, oh, even in this arc, like, I really enjoyed the church and bringing in these characters, but I did have this element of, where have you guys been? I've been in this world for fucking years, and I've not seen any of you. Yeah, yeah. It gets much more consistent from here on. Much more consistent. Like, all the composite parts you've seen so far get applied later. It's just filling out the world and the cosmology in particular. This might sound like a stupid question, Geordie, but we still recommend Berserk, don't we? Yeah, I recommend it more than ever. The conviction arc slaps. It's a, on top of being like emotionally profound and like th- even philo- theologically profound in its commentary on like the scene where Gut says, 
where Farnes, they're being attacked by monsters. Farnes is about to pray, and Guts says, don't put your hands together. If you put your hands together, you can't fight. Like, even that, on top of all that, it's so many fucking amazing action scenes. Guts fights a goat man. Isidro and Puck fight a cult. <laughs> um, we have the duel between Serpico and Guts on the mountainside. We've got Mosgus turning into a f- crazy demon. And we haven't even mentioned the false eclipse. The scenes where like people turn into zombies and start eating each other. And worms made of dead bodies like of plague victims start consuming everyone. Like I said, mate, can't go through every beat. Stuff in here. A lot happens. Yeah. Also, since it's Halloween, I'll just also say the inciting instant for like the heretic, the heretic hunters really going on a prowl is a priest being skinned, and then his skin being put up on a pole as a sort of false effigy. There's some graphic content here, and I think that's something I will always say when recommending Berserk. The co- I cannot give a stronger content warning. On something no. that I yet highly recommend. And I don't think there is anything wrong if you get to any point where I can go, uh, this is not, I can't do, like deal with this. Yes. Fair enough. Completely. Drop out, trust me. From what I can experience so far, it, it's not like there's a, an event and then you can move past it. Berserk pretty consistently puts things in front of you. So, be warned. One more arc, and then I say from then on, the topic of sexual violence is handled better. One more time onto the breach, and then we can say, listen, it's not too bad from here on out. The worst is yet to come, though. Oh dear. Well, let's go and look at something a little bit less harrowing this Halloween Ooh, it's this ooh club. All right, Duncan, that's really interesting that Amiji are like, the next one is not scary. To be fair, I don't know if this story is scary. I've read other works by this author, and sometimes it okay. has horrified me, but not in maybe the ways the author intended. Ah, <laughs> now we know who it is. Yes, despite what I've just said about content warnings and something less horrifying i want to dive back into the world of hp lovecraft for our next pick Ah, because i feel like i've never i've got a big collection book the necronomicon it's called and bound in like a black leather gold writing looks beautiful on my shelf but i've only read kind of some of the short stories some of them i've really liked some of them were atrocious and i want to kind of maybe give lovecraft and the cthulhu mythos a bit more of its fair shake so i'm gonna pick what's often described as one of the best of hp lovecraft's works and that is shadow over innsmouth yes the shadow over innsmouth it is from what i have read of lovecraft it is one of his better better works um i would say it's second to at the mountains of madness which i which i think is just a good story i think it was noteworthy about the mountains of madness is that it's like the only one which i think is not racist period like, Innsmouth? Well, that's for next time. I personal stance, and I'll say this right from the start, I think H.P. Lovecraft is a bad author. Like, he's just a bad writer. And I think the fact that he has a cool genre, which he invented, is great, but he's, he's just bad at writing. Like, he sucks. I think we're going to have a great debate about this. I would not... 
I think mm-hmm. he is one of the most inconsistent authors in the short stories that I have read I have ever experienced. Some of them genuinely chills down my spine, beautiful imagery, yes. Others, what are you on about? What is this twaddle? Have you ever actually been scared? No, this is for next week. This is for next week. I'll ask you if you've ever been scared by H.P. Lovecraft next week. The answer to me is no, I haven't. I'm built different. That is a great question. If one of you guys listening wants to answer that question for yourself, please let us know at Is This Just Fantasy Podcast on Instagram. Always great to hear from you. If you have any opinions on Berserk, on Shadow of Innsmouth, or any other book we have or have not read, please let us know over on our Instagram. We've gone to tell us a bit more depth. You can always contact us at our Gmail. This is just fantasy podcast at gmail.com. Oh, I like reading Berserk. Good plug. It's been a good one. All right, Jordi, see you next week. I'll see you next time for The Shadow Over Innsmouth and to hear a very lengthy description of town history by a bus driver. I've been your host, Geordie Bailey. And I've been your host, Duncan Nickel. Till next time. Bye-bye.